This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Susie Ahn, and this is Reset. Twenty twenty one was one of the most challenging years in recent memory for our environment and ecosystem and health. Sustainable lifestyles and policies provide solutions to mitigate the effects of challenges like climate change, infectious disease, waste, environmental injustice, and racism. Someone you know well has guided us through how these consequential shifts impact our future and what we can do about it. So we're happy to have our contributor Karen Weigert do a retrospective on sustainability for the last year. She's executive vice president at Slipstream, a clean energy innovation nonprofit. And Karen also served as chief sustainability officer for the city of Chicago. So, Karen, we have a lot to get to. um, But before we get started on balance, was 2021 a step forward or backwards? It was definitely a step forward, but recognizing we need many steps. But I'll give you an example of why I feel that way. If we go back to the beginning of 2021, we had a president who did not believe climate change was a real threat and that the government should be acting on it. So a huge change there with the Biden administration coming in. In fact, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord on day one. Also, when we started the year, countries around the globe had a significant level of ambition on climate, but they raised it during the course of 2021. And then also here in Illinois, at the beginning of the year, we had one set of energy legislation, and now a much bigger piece has passed. So definitely a step forward, but as I said, many more steps needed. Let's get right into it. Uh, Start us off on big stories of 2021. Absolutely. So, you know, we're sitting here having this conversation in December in Chicago. We have not yet had snow. So we know the weather is changing. The big story here is just extreme weather. And if you sit back and you look at this year, we had a huge heat wave in the U.S. and Western Canada. Hundreds of people died, and we were talking about temperatures over 100 degrees in places like Portland and Mm. Seattle. That's not the normal conversation. And then if you think about just how strange that is, a city in Spain, Seville, Sevilla in southern Spain, has decided to name heat waves, just like we name storms, to try to raise awareness and help save lives. Yeah. But that's heat extremes. And now there are cold extremes, too. Absolutely. Uh, One of the just unbelievable examples that we saw this year was a huge ice storm in Texas. It shut off power, it shut off water, and was deadly. And we had an opportunity on the show to talk to Catherine Hayhoe, who is a globally renowned climate scientist, about this storm in Texas. It turns out that this type of cold and snow and ice in Texas has happened before. It happened in 2011. It happened in 1989. And each time there were recriminations, there were commissions, there were reports issued saying you really need to prepare for these types of events happening. Mm. Two years ago, the American Society of Civil Engineers issued a infrastructure report card for the whole country. 
and they gave the power grid a D plus grade in terms of how prepared it was for any type of extreme. Whereas moving to the future, we're going to see, and California's already experienced, major stresses on the power grid as summer heat waves get stronger. We're going to see stronger, more powerful hurricanes. We're already seeing greater area burn by wildfire. And if we can't even prepare for cold events that we've had in recent memory, how can we prepare for more extreme events that climate change will bring? That is definitely concerning. I mean, we for sure saw that poor grade play out in Texas. Karen, world leaders and other stakeholders gathered for a climate summit. Uh, the stakes could not have been higher. Yeah, absolutely. And as we think about these weather events, the real question is how do we align the global environmental system to be strong and stable? So this year was COP26, the global meeting of leaders. It was the five-year anniversary, in a sense, of COP21, which is when the Paris Climate Accord was set. So during the course of this, over 150 countries did raise their level of ambition. They have new climate plans looking to slash emissions by 2030, but that's not enough. That's not every country, and they're still not aligned fully on the 1.5-degree max. So while there were clear focus areas on methane or, and on forests and on the finance sector, the countries are still not fully aligned on where that initial Paris goal should take us. Yeah. And emissions rebounded in 2021? Yes. One of the things that people looked at and one of the supposed silver linings of the beginning of the pandemic was that global emissions really declined as economies shut down. What it really was was an indication just of how carbon intensive the economies are. So while you see economies rebounding in many ways, you saw carbon emissions rebounding too. So those bigger structural questions of how do you have a healthy economy and a healthy environment have not yet been sorted out. So we did see emissions rebound. And going back to the summit, we talked in depth about what happened with Kevin Kennedy, senior fellow, uh, U.S. Climate Initiative of the World Resources Institute. He had one great worry. The skepticism that we're hearing from the youth activists, for example, on whether or not world leaders are really showing the urgency that's needed in taking the bold action, I think that skepticism is well earned. And it's important that the world's leaders really step up and continue to increase ambition and, most importantly, deliver. And more generally, I think looking at what happens on Capitol Hill, do we actually get the Build Back Better Act through, which will make a very big difference And globally, you know, to what extent do people really step up with clear plans of action for how they're going to meet their 2030 commitments? Karen, we also talked about solutions for the world, but specifically for Chicago. Can you tell us a few of those? Yeah, when we were thinking about some of those global solutions, and we saw this in in global climate talks and in some of the references there, there was a stronger understanding of nature-based solutions. So globally looking at things like forests, to help absorb carbon and to think about stability and health, but also specific focus on reducing emissions. And we're seeing similar themes emerging in Chicago. There's a foundation here for action, but we saw some specific commitments looking at tree planting, looking at carbon reduction emission, carbon emission reduction, and really focusing on local neighborhoods as the anchors there. And we were lucky enough to bring on my current successor, Angela Tovar, who's the city of Chicago's chief sustainability officer, 
And in September, she's able to talk us a bit through how the city is prioritizing some climate action in the budget. Each one of these four buckets of climate investments, expanding our tree canopy by 75,000 trees, investment in green infrastructure, including the expansion of our Space to Grow program, the clean energy investments, so the retrofitting for low to moderate income housing, and for our neighborhood anchor institutions and libraries, and some of the other pilots like organic waste collection and the cleaning of our waterways, as the city is gearing up to make this clean energy and sustainability transition, we can ensure that our communities, and in particular our communities that are most historically underserved in this space, are able to be contributors, participants, and leaders in our new green economy. Karen, we can't talk about sustainability without discussing how far we've come with electric vehicles in 2021, right? It was a big year, and it was a big year for the reasons we know, which is about air quality and carbon emissions, but it was a really big year in terms of things we're actually going to start to see. There are great commitments now on electric vehicle charging infrastructure, which enables people to have vehicles. But what caught my eye were places where we're going to start to see EVs on the road. One of the big ones was Ford's announcement of an F-150 Lightning. What's so important about this is the Ford F-150 has been the best-selling truck in the United States for over 40 years. And in fact, it's the best-selling vehicle, car, or truck in the U.S. by a long shot. So the idea that there is now an all-electric is transformative. And if you look at some of the advertising for it, a lot of it talks about performance, acceleration, and torque. So this is how we're starting to see a mainstream of electric vehicles that will be around the country. The other extreme example that I think we'll start to see on the road is there's a lot of money in the current federal infrastructure bill for electric school buses. Hmm. So the very ways our kids are going to start to learn and get to school with healthier air and a cleaner environment will start with electric school buses across the country. We even have a tie-in here in Illinois, which is one of the three large manufacturers, is building a plant outside of Chicago. Yeah. Well, back in June, we talked with Kim Wasserman of the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization on Chicago's southwest side. Here she is talking about a push to get Illinois to sign on to a multi-state memorandum of understanding to move towards electrifying their trucks. And the health dangers are clear. What we're seeing in our neighborhood is it's not by chance that we have the second worst air quality. It is through the systematic decision making by the city to continue to put more and more warehouses along the I-55 corridor, which is where South Lawndale currently resides. And so when we talk to folks, one of the first things we talk about is how many more trucks are you seeing on the street, right? How many more am I seeing on I-55? How many more am I seeing literally all across the southwest, south, and southeast sides? We're seeing a lot of industry leave or being moved out of the north side into our neighborhood. Most of the railroads and intermodal facilities are on the south side. This is not by chance. We're seeing more infrastructure deteriorate. We're seeing more accidents on our streets. Every week now, we're seeing trucks stuck under viaducts, trucks that have slipped over, trucks that have caught on fire. So it is literally just craziness out there right now. And Karen, one important element towards mitigating climate change is the effort to decarbonize. What happened there in 2021? Decarbonizing became a clear goal that people are talking about and trying to put into practice. Now, I'll give you just one interesting example. The city of Ithaca has now signed an agreement to literally electrify hundreds of buildings in their goal to decarbonize. So they're looking for scale. They're looking to secure and support existing buildings in cities. But it's sort of goal of decarbonizing and increasing equity in the process. So the goal is not just clean energy. The goal is not just energy efficiency. The goal is decarbonizing the way buildings operate. 
And that's a new way to think about how city infrastructure works. Karen, George Floyd's murder and COVID-19 brought racial justice and equity to the forefront of our national conversation. And climate-induced extreme weather also highlighted a sense of urgency around environmental justice, a topic you covered in depth for Reset. And you have a couple of Reset highlights from the past year. Yeah, that's right, Susie. Let's go back to October. We had a chance to talk to Dr. Rupa Basu of the California EPA about Black maternal health, about heat and climate impacts, and the very specific and unequal way they are experienced by Black mothers. We really found that all pregnant women were at high risk, but what was quite alarming was the disparity by maternal race and ethnic group. The risk for black mothers was almost twice as great. It's not really all socioeconomic status that is explaining this difference. And what we believe it's even with the same access to health care, there's some differential treatment in healthcare, and there's also environmental racism. You know, if you look across the board in all American cities, you're seeing that there's higher levels of fossil fuel emissions, higher levels of traffic, being closer to, you know, other contaminants, all that are more prominent in black and brown communities. That is a stark disparity there, uh, but it's not the only disproportionate health issue going on. No, it's really not. And we've had an opportunity during the course of the year both to hear from Dr. Basu, but also to look at some of the way infrastructure is also tied in. And we've talked a bit about the new infrastructure bill, but we were able back in March to bring on Justin Williams. He's a policy manager at the Metropolitan Planning Council to talk specifically about lead and drinking water in underserved communities. We know from decades of research that lead is a pretty potent toxin with some long-term health consequences attached to it. So among adults, for instance, it's linked to cardiovascular disease and other forms of organ failure. And for children, the dangers are often graver and the consequences are lifelong. And exposure can cause some pretty serious health problems like lower IQ, hearing loss, reduction in growth, and some behavioral issues. And in short, drinking water is one major source of exposure to lead. And like so many other systemic social issues like this, lead exposure is absolutely also a racial inequity issue. Mm -hmm. People of color in Illinois are much more likely than white Illinoisans to live with the infrastructure that leads to lead and drinking. So it's an environmental justice issue, an infrastructure issue, a public health issue for all of us, really. And Karen, to highlight equity issues like these, you've brought to the show one of the country's thought leaders in the environmental justice and awareness movement, Please introduce our next guest. Absolutely. I'm delighted that we're joined today by Naomi Davis. And Naomi, among many things, is the founder of Blacks and Green and works directly in creating an equitable and sustainable future in Chicago for all Chicagoans, particularly being directly focused on dispelling stereotypes, but also bringing wealth-creating solutions to Black Americans rooted in our Chicago neighborhood. So welcome, Naomi. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you for having me, and happy holidays, all. Same to you. Well, uh, get us reacquainted with Blacks in Green and your work to create Black ownership and leadership in the green economy. Well, you know, I'm a child of the Great Migration, and that was that time in American history. As the proud granddaughter of Mississippi sharecroppers, we had 7 million strong moving from the Jim Crow South and into uh, the cities where, frankly, the great American cities uh, grew out of the courage and love and the work ethic of those folks. And so what we saw as a fruit of that 
was these beautiful, blossoming black communities, which over the last 50 years have pretty much gone extinct, that walk to work, walk to shop, walk to learn, walk to play village that we call the sustainable square mile. That's the focus of our work. How can we reinvent that walkable village here in the age Mm -hmm. of climate crisis? And how do we get our black families once again owning the businesses, owning the land, and living the conservation lifestyle right where they live in the hood. Yeah. And Naomi, Kieran has touched on how things have shifted in 2021 regarding how race connects to the climate conversation. I'd like to get your take on that. Uh, What's better and, and what's not? Well, definitely what is better is the solidarity that communities of color are feeling, demonstrating, executing. We have a wellspring of tradition that we're tapping into and bringing forward really new terms of engagement, frontline communities with our white allies. So we're standing for the truth of the environmental justice principles that were uh, compounded back in 91. And we're insisting that On the bad side, those folks and organizations, corporations who are what we call equity pimping, Mm. uh, that we're calling those organizations and individuals out to a greater truth. But we're having these difficult conversations with love and in what we call kinship. So we're creating a new way of handling this road to transformation that, yeah, we believe in boycotting and we believe in marching and we believe in uh, publishing and blogging and all that good stuff. But what we know is necessary as a Mm -hmm. fundament to the transformation that's necessary is that we stop, that we get to the bottom of the exploitation that has ruined our planet and get to healing healing first. Yeah. I want to go back to a a phrase you just used, um, equity pimping. What do you mean by that? And what you've called the, quote, help the Negro industry? Yeah. You know, uh, when I was a kid, it was, you know, Martin and Malcolm and all great things were possible. We had the ear of the world and we had the moral high ground and we had cash flows and organization. And we created uh, something miraculous out of our stand, which over the next five decades was exploited and watered down and what we call the help the Negro industry blossomed as a way to invest, well, trillions of dollars in untold man hours and bleeding hearts from around the world, which instead of producing this stated commitment, the dream, did the opposite. And right now, 50 years later, black communities have the worst health wealth metrics ever. And so what corporation could stay in business with that kind of opposite impact than is planned? And so what we see right now and what we refuse to let happen is another 50 years of pimping the truth 
about what is going to work in power sharing and power shifting. So when we talk about equity pimping, we're talking about people who are providing lip service and getting funding and goodwill in the public eye, but who actually have no back of the uh, veil experience in equitable practices inside their companies? How diverse are their workforces, those who are uh, chanting and blogging around equity? And how diverse is their supply chain? What vendors are they doing business with from uh, black and brown communities? And how are you really doing the deep tissue work to understand how your ignorance can harm as bad and worse than outright intention to harm. Yeah, you're, you're digging into this big area of implicit bias within philanthropy. Um, it's an issue foundations say they know is a problem that must be addressed. Uh, one common refrain in conversations about obstacles to equity is the lack of mentorship or support. Can you talk about that? Well, first of all, I want to say something good about philanthropy because uh, God knows that we have been blessed since the death of St. George, and you know I'm referring to George Floyd, with the commitment of some philanthropies to actually turn their practices around. So we have been able to double our budget and bring on new team members and address deeper tissue approaches to the work that we've been doing. And so it is a change in looking at the amount of money that's being granted, Mm -hmm. the depth of the reporting and uh, rulemaking around how the money is spent. Um, These are all breakaway changes Mm -hmm. from the past. And so uh, good on organizations, especially those like Chicago Frontline Funders Initiative, who's not only making sure that Black-run, Black-serving, and our our brown community cousins are getting general operating funds, which is tremendously rare and Mm -hmm. and too difficult to secure. But they are also bringing other like-minded or curious or aspiring funders into the circle uh, to join them and do right. I mean, it's sort of a Kohan or an axiom in the community that is easier for a white guy right out of college mm-hmm. to get $5 million from a foundation than it is for a, a black woman running a CBO to get 25000 after 25 years. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So that's got to change, and it is changing. And Naomi, Karen has a question for you. Now, you've talked about partnerships that have started to work here. You talked about philanthropy. I'd love to know if you could shed some more light on what are things that haven't worked so that people can get a stronger perspective there. Yes. Well, here's a snapshot. There is a beautiful, pastoral, historic, sacred conservation place called Pembroke Township, uh, right outside of uh, Chicago, one of the oldest black conservation land districts in the country. And for over 200 years, they have been doing the sacred work of regenerative farming. And in comes NICOR Gas, that is the owned by Southern Company, that is in the American Gas Association family of companies. 
And what they are saying to community members is that, yes, and you've talked about it on the show earlier, yes, the world is decarbonizing. We're moving from fossil fuels. We're taking them out of your homes. We're taking them out of your uh, businesses. And we are replacing that toxicity and that earth-smothering element. And what we're doing is replacing it with renewable energy, clean energy. And as the world engages in that practice, of course, our uh, whiter, wealthier cousins are able to make those shifts, buy those appliances, create the funding necessary to make the interconnections. Mm -hmm. But by contrast, our black community members are not, uh, because we have uh, historically one-tenth the wealth, of those crosstown cousins, we are subject to and vulnerable to what's called stranded assets. So as the world moves on, those who are least able to afford out of their own pockets to make a transition are left behind. And vulnerable people like that, like those left on the roofs of Katrina, I might add, are targeted by corporations as an easy pickoff for the expansion of fossil fuel at a time when everybody else is moving in the right direction, NICOR, Southern Company, and the American Mm -hmm. Gas Association are moving in the wrong direction. You mentioned Pembroke. Uh, Karen, you talked on the show about how NICOR and political leaders in downstate Pembroke pose an existential danger to black farmers in that region. And here's Dr. Jafunza Carter, who back in August was on the show with her husband, Fred. They're spokespeople for the farmers. When we came down, it was so unbelievable. Folks were living so in harmony. And then when we heard the legacy and the heritage, the stories about how black farmers fought to keep this area as pristine as it is now, it's a renowned, internationally known microbiome. And this was not happenstance. This Mm -hmm. was something that people fought and were willing to adjust their lives, including their economics for. And I think what we're dealing with now is the contradiction of that. But for over 40 years, we've been fighting a gas pipeline to not be here so that we can protect the environment. And Naomi, uh, you just spoke on that issue. And I want to get really quickly um, from each of you. What do the events of 2021 indicate about the path forward? Um, I'll start with you, Naomi. Well, it indicates that the black and brown community can be counted on to make our own decisions, create our own solutions, that we have wisdom in our strategies, that we should continue to be increasingly funded, and that projects like ICC regulatory reform, which is a key factor in this NICOR gas line expansion, is how are communities being engaged in the public process that Mm -hmm. they are funding so that their wisdom can guide the decision-making of governmental entities. Mm -hmm. We need reform at the ICC. Thank you so much, Naomi Davis of Blacks and Green and Karen Weigert from Slipstream. Happy holidays and a great new year to both of you. Well, that's it for today's Reset. Let's hope 2022 continues the momentum of 2021 in protecting our environment and ensuring equity in our communities. And to hear more stories on these topics, subscribe to this podcast. And while you're there, please give us a rating. It helps people find us. I'm Susie on in for Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening, and please come back tomorrow.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.